thus far in our exposition of 1 Timothy chapter 1, there's been a reoccurring phrase in most of the sermon titles. And that phrase is, no false doctrine. No false doctrine. The sermon on verses 3 through 7 was labeled that, no false doctrine. Why? Because false doctrine is illegal according to God's word. False doctrine strikes out at love and false doctrine produces rotten fruit. Using my creative abilities, when it came to verses 8 through 11, I labeled the message, no false doctrine about the law. We have to make sure that the Mosaic law that we don't have the wrong view of it, the wrong understanding of it. And when we looked at verses 8 through 11, we learned that the law is good. It is good, but the law is not for a righteous person, but for unrighteous people. And that the law is in harmony with the gospel. I changed the title, so to speak. I left out the words, no false doctrine last Sunday as we looked at that testimony of Paul, a doxological testimony of gratitude. Paul was thankful to God for showing mercy to him, for displaying Christ's perfect patience. Paul was so thankful for what God had done in his life. But now as we come to verse 18, all the way to verse 20, I want to use that phrase again. No false doctrine. No false doctrine really matters. That's the exclamation point. I hope I didn't break our little cheap pulpit here. But no false doctrine. No false doctrine really matters. It would be tragic for us to come to the end of 1 Timothy 1 and to walk away from it, thinking that God doesn't really care about false doctrine, that it's not significant to him. We might as well take a pair of scissors and cut out the 20 verses in this chapter and omit it if we, we conclude or if we think or if we walk away after another worship service, thinking that it doesn't matter at all, that false doctrine is not important at all. No false doctrine matters. And I apologize, so to speak, for using that phrase again, but I, I want us to make sure that as individuals, that as a church, that no false doctrine is to be a part of our lives and no false doctrine is to be a part of our church. And so as we come to these verses, I want to communicate to you that no false doctrine really matters. Now please note the exhortation in verses 18 and first part of verse 19, the exhortation that proves that no false doctrine 
really matters. It's as if the Apostle Paul is trying to twist our arm. Twist our arms to the point where we say that no false doctrine is really important. That we don't have a lackadaisical attitude. That we're not casual about the fact that there is to be no false doctrine in my individual life. There's to be no false doctrine in the church that I attend. Paul begins his exhortation with the words, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Paul is directly addressing Timothy. He's getting in his face as his loving spiritual father and saying, Timothy, I'm giving you a command. I'm entrusting it to you for your care, for your protection. And he addresses Timothy and reminds Timothy, Timothy, you're my son. You're my child. We have a special, special relationship. That of father and son. That of father and child. And Timothy, I'm exhorting you. I'm not talking to the church at Ephesus, but I'm exhorting you. I'm coming to you. I'm placing before you. I'm entrusting to you this command. So as we look at the exhortation, the exhortation is not new. This is not something that Paul is coming up with. This exhortation is not new. It goes back to verse 3 when Timothy was to instruct certain men not to teach Strange doctrines. Paul says, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus. I left you with that church in Ephesus that you might teach and instruct and command that there be no false doctrine, that you don't allow anyone to teach strange doctrines. And when we come to verse 5 of that same chapter, Paul says that the whole purpose of that command, of that instruction, is love. It's love. That is what is to be evident in our lives. And now, in verse 18, Paul says, this command, the the command that I gave you in verse 3, Timothy, the command that was reiterated to you in verse 5, this command I'm giving to you, Timothy, I don't want you to be in the dark with regards to what your responsibility is. I'm giving you this command. This command not to teach False doctrine, not to allow false doctrine to be promoted among the people of God. And the exhortation is in harmony, it's in keeping with special divine revelation. It is interesting that when this command is given to Timothy, Paul brings up something that happened previously in Timothy's life. He says, Timothy, I'm giving you this command. I'm placing it into your trust in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. A prophecy was God's way of speaking to his people. It was a divine revelation that came from God to man. 
so that God's people can know his will, can know his desire. One, one of the ways that God communicated with his people. There are different ways, particularly when you look at the Old Testament, that God communicated with his people. In the right of Hebrews, he mentions the different ways and the different times that God communicated. When God wanted his people to know certain things, he would speak to an individual, often a prophet, and he would communicate through that prophet his will for a person. In Timothy's life, we don't know when, we don't know what was said, we don't know when it was said, but there was an incident in Timothy's life where several prophecies were made. Several revelations from God through a prophet to Timothy were made about his ministry, about what he was to do and how he was conduct himself. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to understand that as I entrust this command to you, I do so in keeping with those prophecies. Those prophecies, Timothy, recall them to mind because they will help you to stay on track. You see, Timothy was not to live his life according to his own whims or wisdom, but he was to live his life according to divine revelation. And, and that's not just true for Timothy. That's true for you and for me as Christians. We're not to live our lives according to our own inclinations, but we are to live our lives according to the inspired, written word of God. So we don't go out as Christians and do whatever we think is right, whatever we feel is right. But we go and live our lives according to what thus saith the Lord, according to divine revelation according to the written word of God. God is not going to speak to you from heaven. He's going to speak to you through his word. And he's going to let his word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path so that you can know how to live for his glory and for his honor. And so Paul brings up these former prophecies. And he says, Timothy, I remind you of them. I want you to obey this exhortation. I want you to keep this trust in harmony, in accordance with prophecies which were made previously about you. In the exhortation, the goal of it aims at fighting the good fight. That's what the goal of Timothy being given this command, that there be no false teaching. The goal is that it will be a part of Timothy fighting the good fight. Paul uses a play on word. Fight the good fight. Contend the good contest. War the good warfare. He's trying to remind Timothy Timothy, the Christian life, means that you are a soldier. That you are a soldier in your relationship with what God is doing here on earth. Timothy, fight the good fight because you are a soldier. You are involved in a spiritual military campaign. 
You're not just tiptoeing through the tulip. You're not just doing what you want to do. You're not just enjoying a life. Timothy, you are a soldier. Timothy, you are in a war. You're in a battle. And you need to look at your life and one of the goals that God has for your life, Timothy. God wants you to fight the good fight. Paul is going to use that phrase again at the end of the book in chapter 6, verse 12. He's going to say to Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight. And then Paul uses that phrase in reference to himself. When Paul gets to the end of his life, after having served the Lord, as he's in prison a second time in Rome, and from his point of view, it's all over. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. But Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, I, I fought, Timothy, the good fight. Timothy, when I look back on my life, when I look at the, the fact that I'm a soldier in the army of God, when I look at how I live, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. And so Timothy needs to understand that the goal for him, the aim of him being given this command, is that he would fight the good fight, that he would wage the good warfare. Please, please keep in mind he's to fight the good fight. He didn't just say fight. You know, some of us church folks haven't been raised in the church. We know how to fight. We forget that our enemy is not one another. Now, our enemy, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we don't wrestle or contend with flesh and blood, but with Satan and his demonic forces. But we act like we're supposed to fight against one another. We, we, we want to do battle with each other. And we're missing out on fighting the good fight. There is a good, noble, beautiful fight that Christians are, ought to be involved in. And, and as part of that good, noble, beautiful fight, it means no false doctrine. So we fight against false teaching and false doctrine in the context of a local church. That's a part of fighting the good fight. Not just fighting, but fighting the good fight. And Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to fight the good fight, there's a couple of qualities that have to be true of you. Timothy, as he says to him in verse 19, keep faith and a good conscience. Think about that. As I'm waging the real war, as I'm fighting the good fight, as I'm contending the good contest, two qualities that must be a part of my life are faith and a good conscience. Now, now if, you, if you've been paying attention to 1 Timothy 1, 
hearing the word faith and hearing the word good conscience should not surprise you at all. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is not to puff up your head with knowledge. Uh, the goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love. And, and he says love in your life as a Christian doesn't come from just anything, but it comes from a pure heart. It, it comes from a good conscience. And it comes from a sincere faith. And so now as he tells Timothy to fight the good fight, he doesn't mention a pure heart, but he does mention faith. And he does mention a good conscience. And the faith that he's talking about, he's saying, Timothy, you got to hold on to, you got to grasp, you got to cling to faith. That is trust in God. Each and every step of the battle, Timothy, cling to God, hold on to God, keep trusting in him. Don't give up on leaning on the everlasting arms. Trust in the Lord is what Paul is saying to Timothy, keep faith. A sign uh, that you're walking away from the Lord, a sign that you are spiritually going backward is that you don't trust Him anymore. You don't rely upon Him. You lean to your own understanding. You do things your own way. And Paul is saying, Timothy, as you fight the good fight, it is essential that you hold on to faith, genuine faith, trust, in the Lord. But also, Timothy, got to hold on to a good moral compass. That's what the conscience is. Some of us have a conscience that is whacked out. It, it, it ain't working right. Because we have violated it. Because it's been seared. But Paul says, Timothy, hold on to a good conscience. One that is informed and directed by the Word of God. One that is able to determine right from wrong and chooses what to do that which is right. Hold on to a good conscience. Hold on to faith. But Paul gives this exhortation that proved that no false doctrine really matters. And I don't know if he really has been able to twist your arm enough that you can say and shout no false doctrine is really important. And you might not be there quite yet. And so I turn your attention to the last part of verse 19 and verse 20. Because in those verses, we have the examples that illustrate that no false doctrine really matters. Paul is going to provide some exhibits, some examples to, to, to really press upon us and to press upon Timothy how important it is 
that there be no false doctrine in our individual life and no false doctrine in our church life. So when we look at these verses, we first of all see the example of those who have suffered shipwreck. You see that in the last part of verse 19, individual, that Paul says, has suffered shipwreck. He puts it this way, some, Timothy, have suffered shipwreck. I'm sure that broke Paul's heart when he wrote those words. Because he's not talking about those outside of the church. He's talking about those in the church. Those who presented themselves as teachers, etc. And Paul writes, Timothy, some, not all, but some have suffered shipwreck. They crash. They've lost direction. They've broken into pieces. And the question is, how did this happen? How did it happen? He said it happened because they have rejected a good conscience. A, a good conscience, my friends, is important quality to have. And Paul is saying when you reject a good conscience, it leads to shipwreck in your walk with God. When he talks about them having suffered shipwreck, the New American Standard Bible says in regards to their faith, but really it's in regards to the faith. That, that body of truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints that Jude 3 speaks of. There's a body of truth. There's a Christian faith that has been given to the people of God that is in the Word of God. And some people have suffered shipwreck in reference to that body of truth. Their, their lives have been damaged. Their lives have been wrecked. They're like a ship that is wrecked. And you just think about in history, different ships that have been wrecked. Paul says that's a picture of their lives. Their, their lives are wrecked when it comes to their the faith, when it comes to that body of truth. And the reason why it's happened is because they've gone astray, as he said earlier. But here he says they have rejected a good conscience. Their moral compass told them one thing, and they chose another thing. When you have a good conscience, it tells you what's right and what's wrong. When you have a good conscience, it tells you how to live and what to do. And you and I have the ability to ignore our conscience, to reject our conscience, to repudiate our conscience. When it came to these false teachers, these individuals who embrace false doctrine, Paul says in essence what they have done is that they have repudiated, they have pushed aside, they have rejected sound doctrine. They have rejected their conscience telling them what is right and wrong. And when you reject your conscience, when you repudiate it, when you turn aside from it, it is going to lead to a shipwreck in your life with regard to sound doctrine. 
You, you want to know the best path to a shipwrecked life? It's not to live up according to God's word. To turn away from it. To do things your own way. And as Paul writes to Timothy, we can say that some have suffered shipwreck. And that's a reminder that false doctrine is dangerous. It's nothing to play with, my friend. You can't just turn on your radio or turn on YouTube or TV or whatever and listen to anybody who says they're Christian. False doctrine is dangerous. And if you want proof, if you want evidence, Paul says some have suffered shipwreck in regards to sound doctrine. My friends, we don't have to go back into the Bible to see this. There are individuals around us who, who once held on to biblical truth, who once held on to the Christian faith, and they're out there strained and, and gone aside in their shipwreck with regards to their faith. Verse 20 points out the example of two who have been delivered over to Satan. <laughs> you think false doctrine is no big deal? <laughs> you can think that after seeing that some are shipwrecked with regards to their understanding of Scripture in the Bible and the Christian faith? You think false doctrine doesn't matter and you read verse 20 where there are individuals who have been delivered over to Satan? We come to this verse and Paul identifies two men by, by name out of those who have suffered shipwreck. He said there are some who have suffered shipwreck and out of that group, I, I want to mention two names. And Paul normally doesn't use names to call people out. But in this case, he calls out these two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Evidently, they were known to Timothy. They were known to these Christians in Ephesus. And Paul said, you want to see how dangerous, how horrific false doctrine is? Look at what it did in the life of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look at the consequences of them teaching false doctrine and embracing false doctrine and following false, false doctrine. I use them, Timothy, as exhibits A and B. Hymenaeus, only other time this name is used is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And there it says that this individual taught that somehow the resurrection had already happened. More than likely, the individual in 1 Timothy and the one in 2 Timothy is the same individual. The name Alexander is a very common name. Common name among Greeks and Gentiles. My dad's middle name was Alexander. Some of you have heard of Alexander the Great, etc. Common name. Even when you come to the New Testament, it's used 
in four different places in relationship to Paul. I think it's not worth trying to take the Alexander of our text and match it up with these other Alexanders that I mentioned. The point that is being made, here are two individuals, two individuals that are pointed out by name, Alexander and Hymenaeus. And Paul says, I took action on them. I did something with regards to them. Paul says, I have delivered them over to Satan. Did you hear that? Paul says, Timothy, I, your spiritual father, uh, the one who's an apostle, according to the commandment of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope, I took action on these two men. These two men stood out among the others who had suffered shipwreck. I took action on them. I delivered them over to Satan. And what that means is that Paul exercised church discipline on these two individuals. I know we don't talk much about church discipline. We don't really even practice church discipline, but it is biblical. And Paul practiced church discipline on these two individuals, and it meant what he did is that he put them outside of the local church in Ephesus and put them into the hands of Satan. That's what he did. He said, I delivered them over to that real spiritual being that some people think is just a myth or a figment of one's imagination. I delivered him over to Satan. Paul had no problem at all in believing in a real devil. The devil is real. And Paul says, I handed these two individuals over, not to some individual who's wearing a red outfit and holding a pitchfork. I'm talking about the one who's the God of this world. The one who, in whom's lap the whole world lies. The world of unbelievers. Paul says, I delivered them over. I exercised church discipline on them. They're out of the church. They've been excommunicated. They're now in the realm of Satan. You see, Jesus believes in church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, he talks about it. What happens when a brother or sister sins against you, what you're supposed to do. Not go gossip. Not go tell everybody else, but deal with that person. And ultimately, if the person is guilty of sin and the person doesn't turn from the sin, you get others involved and eventually to tell it to the church. And in the church, the person still doesn't respond. Jesus says, treat him like an unsaved person. Church discipline means that when a person refuses to turn from continual sin, that that person is to be turned over to Satan, so to speak, treated like an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, Paul practiced church discipline. There was a so-called believer in the Corinthian church involved in a an ancestral relationship with his stepmother. 
and the Corinthians didn't deal with it, didn't do anything about it. They were probably bragging, we're a loving church. We're a forgiving church. We will accept you. And Paul says, no, I take an action. I turn this individual over to Satan so that his flesh can be dealt with, but his soul saved. So when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, here is Paul saying with Hymenaeus and with Alexander, I have turned them over to Satan. Why did you do that, Paul? Why did you discipline them? Is it because you don't love them? Or is it because you hate them? No, Paul says, I turned them over to Satan that they might be taught, instructed, schooled, that they're not to blaspheme. That's why. See, church discipline is loving. Church discipline is designed to restore. Church discipline is not designed to damn a person, but to reclaim a person. God has designed it to cause a person to turn from their sin. So these two men were put out the church. They were turned over to Satan because they slandered God and they slandered God's people and God's truth. False doctrine, you might think it doesn't matter. The false doctrine can lead to church discipline. It can lead to a person that they continue to hold on to, to be subject to being put out of the church and treated like an unbeliever. If no false doctrine really matters, then that means that sound doctrine does matter. Did you hear that? If no false doctrine matters, then sound doctrine matters. So yes, we are to prohibit the teaching of false doctrine, but we are to promote the teaching of sound doctrine. That's what we are to do as a church. We prohibit false doctrine, but we promote sound doctrine. And when you look at the ministries of Fairview, when you look at our fellowship groups, when you look at our worship services, a part of that is about promoting sound doctrine. We want sound doctrine to be heard from those in the nursery all the way to those who might be in a senior citizen home. False doctrine is, for, is never to be allowed. Sound doctrine is to be promoted. And you and I must, you and I must as Christians, get serious about no false doctrine in our lives. There's to be no room for false teaching who proclaim a prosperity gospel, who proclaim that Jesus Christ is not God, who proclaim that we are gods, and the list go on. No room for false teaching. 
And there's to be no room for false doctrine in our lives and in our church life. Do you know that it is false, that it is a false doctrine to believe that you don't need to repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a false doctrine. Paul said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Can I add? It's a false doctrine to believe that you don't have to be a member of a local church. The, the Bible that I have gives, gives reasons why a person ought to be a part of a local church. That's not my desire to want more members at Fairview. That's my desire that Christians understand whether they're a part of Fairview or not, that they are to be a part of a good local church. They're to be a member of a good local church. Do you know that it's false doctrine to believe that the gathering together of believers is not important? It's heretical to, to believe today as a Christian, that the forsaking of our assemblies together as Christian is acceptable. Hebrews 10 verse 25 makes it clear that it's not, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That public worship, corporate worship is to be a priority in our life as a people of God. In this post COVID age. We've forgotten that. But the Bible has not forgotten that. The, the command is still clear. The responsibility is still there. And there's other false doctrines that we can slyly embrace. That's why on Wednesday night Bible study, we're, we're pointing out the fact that one of the activities of Satan is that he's a liar. He acts as a liar. And what he loves to do is to distort the truth and turn it into heretical, false doctrine that you and I might embrace. So I would encourage you, learn the lies of Satan when he tries to infiltrate our lives with false doctrine. First Timothy, verses Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Shout loudly and clearly that no false doctrine really matters. And I hope that your arm has been twisted by the Word of God so that when you leave today, that you understand that in your individual life, and in our church life, there is to be no room for false doctrine at all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reoccurring theme in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 of no false doctrine. Help us to really take that seriously. Help us to 
rely upon you, rely upon your spirit to make sure that in our individual lives that we're not making any room for teaching that is contrary to your word. Help us, O oh God, to be a church that refuses to allow false doctrine to be proclaimed. Help us to be Christians who take seriously the matter that in my walk with God, that there is to be no false doctrine. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Help us not to be at the hands of the evil one, the, the one who's a liar, the one who consistently distorts your truth and presents it in such a way that we think it is the right truth in this world. Protect us from the evil one. Protect us from his lies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.